Well, good morning, brethren. It's good to be together today. And we will be continuing our series in the epistle of John, his first letter uh, that he wrote. So if you want to find your place there, back towards the very end of your New Testaments, we do preach through books of the Bible here at Grace Bible Church, and it is a delight to gain the overall understanding of, of the purpose of the authors of the individual books of Scripture as we would work through those, and even themes sometimes. For example, our evening series right now is on the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven is like, is like, is like. And so tonight we'll be looking at Matthew 18 and that important parable that Christ gives of the king forgiving the servant of 10,000 talents and then him going out who had been forgiven an insurmountable amount, choking his fellow slave, demanding payment. Very important lesson for us. And so um, I'd invite you back this evening. Well, in this life, when you uh, encounter various things, uh, sometimes the red lights come on behind you, you know, and you're like, suddenly, if you're anything like me, which this hasn't happened in a long time, you know, you, your heart begins to beat a little quicker and, uh, you know, that kind of thing. And so, uh, but, but if you hear those words that we suggest you get a lawyer, that, that means something's pretty serious going on. Sometimes it's custody disputes, um, you know, whatever it might be, uh, you need a lawyer, And in a sense, that's true of every single one of us here today, because we are guilty as sinners. We need a lawyer to plead our case before a holy God. And in our text, it's it's communicated as Christ being our advocate. We are sinners and we are unfit to stand in the presence of a holy God in and of ourselves We've sinned, we've violated his holiness, we've broken all of the commandments in one way or another. We are unfit to stand before him. But yet God has provided an advocate to plead your case. And how much will this attorney cost? Well, the cost to you is very affordable, for he works all of his cases pro bono. There's no cost to you. Only that you must plead guilty. He's not going to get you off with some smoke and mirrors like a lot of defense attorneys do nowadays. But you must plead guilty as charged. And then he will plead your case as he goes to that judge. And we'll talk more about that. This advocate, this lawyer, truly has your best interest at heart. Not like some appointed public defenders where you can tell they've got a hundred cases and, you know, you're trying, you got 90 seconds of their time and, you know, trying to talk to them and you can tell they're really not there. No, he's fully and truly interested in your case. Well, as we come to chapter two, having spent some weeks in chapter one, uh, John uses this term, my little children, a term of endearment, a term of love. John addresses the, the hearers with tenderness and compassion, just as Psalm 103 says, just as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. So let's read the text. I'm going to pick it up at 1.5 and read through 2.2, just to get the broader context. 1 John chapter 1, beginning in verse 5. This is the message we have heard from him and announced to you, that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him, and yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. 
If we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. My little children, I'm writing these things to you that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous, and he himself is a propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. Let's pray once again. Our Father, we come before you as a needy people. Lord, there are a myriad of distractions and cares in our own mind and buzzings on our uh, devices and all of that. Lord, would you allow us to set those things aside now that we might come to your word Lord, that you would send the Holy Spirit upon this place, that you'd purify our hearts, that you would renew our weak wills by magnifying the work of Christ before us this day. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Just a couple of words to review. John's purpose in writing is that we might have fellowship with the Father, chapter 1 and verse 3. In this previous chapter of which I've just read um, most of that, There's a picture of the blackness of sin and the folly of denying that we are sinners. God is light and in him is no darkness at all. It is an overarching, um, you might think of it as an umbrella. And then you have these three propositions, verse 6, verse 8, verse 10, which are negatively. And then uh, John answers that in verse 7, 9, and even 2b. Uh, today in the middle of chapter or uh, verse one of chapter two. John also writes in his gospel, this is the judgment that light has come into the world, but people love darkness rather than light. Why? Because their deeds are evil. Of course, we live in a culture where sin has been redefined and, and all of that, and so, which we've mentioned in recent weeks. But we must must own our sin. What's it say in verse 8? If we say we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves. Uh, The word is plano in the Greek. It's the idea back in Plato's time where it would be horses galloping, running fast, and they get off the trail and go off the course. If you deny that you are a sinner, you're going astray off the course. Self-deception. But the glorious thing of verse 9, of which most of us have this verse memorized, that if we confess our sins, it's he is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And it's a present tense. If we are, we are to keep confessing our sins, this isn't, oh, I came to Christ in, you know, whatever, 2010, and I confess my sins and now I'm done with that. No, it should be a daily uh, act of contrition and repentance before God. And, and furthermore, the longer that you're in the Christian life, the longer that you're a Christian, you, you're more sensitive to the sin that you commit. And there should be a catalog of sins daily when you come in your quiet time before God, confessing to him. Well, the basis of this is that he is faithful and just to cleanse us. It's a continual cleansing that he gives us. 
And then verse 10, if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar. Notice each one gets worse, each proposition. We're making God a liar. If you say you have no sin and I'm a good person, you are calling God a liar. And the cross of Calvary would just be one big, huge joke. Why did he come to die if we're not sinners? Well, today as we come, John, as it were, uh, invites us into the classroom to listen to him as an instructor as he addresses little children, to remind us that we are, we, we will still sin, but our lives are not to be characterized by sin, but an ongoing Christ-like conformity. The price that was paid was infinite. The power that is available to weaken sin by the Holy Spirit is there, and it is great. Furthermore, we have an advocate that's pleading our case before God. So this is good news. So we're going to look at this under three points, looking at only verses 1 and 2 today. Sin is a great evil before a holy God, verse 1a. Secondly, when you sin, Jesus pleads your case for you, that's verse 1b. And then lastly, Jesus Christ satisfied the Father's wrath in verse 2. So first of all, just this first phrase, little children, I am writing these things to you that you may not sin. Again, John writes with a blend of the tenderness of an elderly grandfather, as it were, in the faith, but with the boldness of a pastor and an apostle that has some authority as he's communicating. In John, the Gospel of John 13, 33, he called the disciples little children and loved ones. Remember, John's probably in his 80s or 90s by now, probably writing in, in the mid-90s A.D., And so, 60 years after Christ. So, there's a shift now from the opponents, the Gnostics, and their claims, which is really what verse 6, 8, and 10 are, now to direct discourse to the people of God. I'm writing to you, little children, that you may not sin. Not that it's okay to sin sometimes, that you can choose which sins you commit, but the goal is that you may not sin. John certainly doesn't believe in sinless perfection. He's not saying that, okay, from henceforth and forevermore that you will never commit a sin. No, he doesn't believe in that. If we could illustrate it like this, large manufacturing corporations where there's uh, you know, production going on and the building of, of trinkets or equipment and so forth, they have safety training. It's mandatory every week, probably more than once a week now, and who knows what OSHA requires nowadays. Uh, but what's the purpose of that? To prevent accidents. And oftentimes with these larger uh, corporations, there's an on-site clinic that's staffed with a nurse. Now that's not there so that you might hurt yourself or that you might get sick, but it's there in case it happens. Well, this passage you might think of as a spiritual clinic with caution. Watch out that you do not sin. But if you do, there's a spiritual clinic for you. That is in the form of an advocate to plead your case. John strikes an important balance that I want to be sure that you understand very clearly. That when we sin, as those who have been born again, we are not to utterly despair in our sin so that we are completely weakened. That's perfection that you can accomplish that. But also that God's grace is not a license to sin. Antinomianism. And then you just sin freely because I'm waving the Christian flag. No. So there's an important balance that we must strike. 
Now, John, as I said, is 80s, probably his 90s at the time of writing. He has seen countless people saved and transformed by the power of God. Living in Ephesus, where he was a a pillar in the churches there, Um, no doubt six decades, maybe seven of, of ministry, he has seen thousands of people converted and what? Growing in the grace and knowledge of Christ. In other words, he's seen wretched sinners transformed into something altogether beautiful, altogether wonderful. Sin is inevitable, but it's not excusable, but it is forgivable, we must remember. John Newton, the author of Amazing Grace, has said this, I am not what I ought to be, but I am not what I once was. And it is by the grace of God that I am what I am. Yes, your goal should be not to sin. The end of chapter 5 in the Sermon on the Mount, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. That's the call. The woman caught in adultery. Jesus did not say after forgiving her, he did not say, okay, go and sin a little less. or, or, Or try to avoid doing that again. No, he says, go and sin no more. Likewise, the man that was healed in John 5, afterwards Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, Behold, you have come, you have become well. Do not sin anymore so that nothing worse happens to you. You see, the ground is level for all of us at the foot of the cross. There's no one better than the other. But we are called to live a life pleasing to him. And, and notice the statement that John gives us here is, is not, he doesn't qualify sin and put sins in different categories. These sins are okay, this many per week, or this or that. No, it's that you may not sin. The Roman Catholic Church, of course, has what they call mortal sins, and uh, the ones that are automatic or, etern- or eternal damnation, and then uh, uh, venial sins, which are forgivable. He does not speak in those categories. It's application. Why should you not sin? Well, sin is your greatest enemy. It is your greatest enemy. Satan is a master deceiver. He will hang the bait. He'll get you to off course to where you're going after it. And as you grab it, as it says in one of the Proverbs, it may taste sweet in the mouth, but very soon it begins to taste like gravel. Satan is a master deceiver, appearing as an angel of light. He will trick you. I can't remember which one of the church fathers it was walking on a He gave this illustration, walking on a narrow path. If hell was on one side and committing a sin willfully on this side, I would rather fall in hell than willfully um, commit a sin against a holy God. It violates God's holiness. He is light. Sin is blackness. It breaks fellowship with God so that the communion that we have with our God who has loved us so much from before the foundation of the world, that fellowship is broken. It affects your fellowship with one another amongst the saints in our interpersonal relationships. Sin ruins your life. Falling into pride, lust, depression, and all of that. I mean, how did David say it in Psalm 32? I was wasting away until I confessed my sin unto you. It dishonors the gospel and the power of the gospel. Your sin affects others. It can spread like a contagious disease. And finally, and largely John's purpose in writing, 
is that it will destroy your confidence in God. To put it another way, your assurance of salvation will be shaken. Your assurance of salvation will be diminished in a very practical way, and it's not as though God's drawing some out and adding more in. It's it's our perception uh, of our assurance of salvation and the confidence that we have that we are in Him. And if you're living in a habitual sin, and you're living haphazardly and, and, and all of that and walking like the world, you will have little assurance, I can assure you. Again, Satan is a master deceiver, and you might be deceived for a while, thinking that everything is great. But in the end of the day, when you're on your deathbed, when you're in the ER, when you're faced with life and death, you will not have assurance. And that's why we are called as Christians to fight against sin, to put off the old deeds and to put on new deeds unto righteousness and renewing our minds. That's why we are to fight as the soldier in uh, Ephesians chapter 6. We can have victory over these sins by the power of the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 10.13, there is no temptation except for what is common to all of us, common to man. But God is faithful with the temptation and he will provide a way of escape. Memorize verses like that. Claim the promises. Denying the the desires of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life, which is later in chapter 2, is not merely checking off a list of do's and don'ts. I've got my legalistic list here, and as long as I check all these, that I did these, and that I didn't do all of these, I should be fine. I should have great assurance. What do you mean I don't have assurance? I can show you. It's all listed right here. I did all my do's and don'ts. It's not how it works. Not how it works. Overcoming the world is not a list of external things. It's being renewed inwardly by the power of the Holy Spirit, renewing our minds. It is seeking to grow in holiness, uh, seeking to grow in strength, to say no to sin. The work of growth is founded upon the finished work of Christ, which is where he goes next. When you sin, there is hope. God has made provision for you. So first of all, our first point, hate sin. Sin is dangerous. Seek to walk in purity before God. Secondly, Jesus pleads your case before the Father every time you sin. Look at the rest of the verse. And if, conditional clause again, anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. You are in great need of an advocate to plead your case. One who can appear before God because he's perfectly holy. You would be consumed in God's presence were it not for the imputed righteousness of Christ. And this is really the counterclaim to verse 10. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. And then here, if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father. If anyone sins, it's, it's a subjunctive. The likelihood is that you will sin. Um, but you're not to be enslaved by sin. And and one of the beautiful things is there's upwards of 150 or more words describing Christ throughout the Bible. That's a fascinating study sometimes. For example, he's called Emmanuel, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the Bread of Life, the Prince of Peace, the Son of Man, the Second Adam, the Door, the Great Shepherd, etc. And here he is called the Advocate. The Advocate. What does Advocate mean? It's one who appears in another's behalf. It could mean mediator or intercessor or helper. 
The idea is it's, 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 it's these two things wedded together. One who is called alongside to, to help, but also one that pleads our case and lends his voice in defense. It communicates the legal sense of the word, and, and that an advocate is one who comes to our defense to stand for our case. He is the greatest defense attorney ever. Jesus, as our advocate, calls to mind the Arianic priesthood. Remember, the, the priest represented the people to God. And what would they have across their breastplate? The names of the 12 tribes of Israel. So as they would go about their work of interceding, their work of offering sacrifices, they were representing these 12 tribes scattered here before a holy God. How fitting it is for Christ to be described as our great high priest, the one that represents us before a holy God as well. The claim to personal perfectionism uh, is just goes out the door. We have an advocate that can plead our case for us. Now, an interesting thing, and we don't have the time to turn there, but if you're familiar with the Gospel of John, 14 to 16, the upper room discourse, part of the upper room discourse, he's telling the disciples, I'm going to send a helper. You remember that? Uh, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send my, in my name, John 14, 26. Uh, John 16, 7, uh, one other place, refers to the Holy Spirit. But it's very interesting that in John 14, 16, he says this, There's an interchangeability here. Sometimes it refers to the Holy Spirit. Sometimes it refers to Christ. And in 14, 16, Jesus told the disciples that he would ask the Father to send them another paraclete. That is, another of the same kind. This implies that Jesus himself was the paraclete, their advocate, during their earthly ministry. But I will send another one like me in the form of the Holy Spirit's. The courtroom scenes can fascinate us. Uh, I think there's, I don't know how many, how many cable channels are there now? Like a thousand or something? I don't know how many of those are dedicated to just like court, you know, whatever. Like people that just are glued to watching that kind of stuff. But uh, it fascinates us. I remember back very vividly in 1995, the O.J. Simpson trial. Even the soap operas they took off. The daytime talk, whatever you want to call those shows, uh, were often the networks were running it continuously. People were fascinated over that, and it went on for months. When I was a teenager growing up a long, long time ago in the 1970s, uh, there were two shows that I remember, Perry Mason, the one that always fought for people, and he would always win, it seemed like. And then also the People's Court with Judge Wapner. You know, people would watch that. And, and I think that's what popularized all these Judge Judys and I don't know how many different ones there are now, but there's a lot of them. But people are fascinated with that picture. Well, brothers and sisters, we have a scene here. If you just imagine and in your mind, Jesus Christ the righteous is qualified to plead our case to the Father. He is altogether righteous. He has paid my penalty on the cross when he died for my sins as a substitute. And that's exactly what verse 2 will tell us when we get there. Hebrews 2, verse 18, he himself was tempted in that while he suffered and so that he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. Beautiful verses on his high priestly work. Hebrews 7.25, therefore he is able to save forever 
those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to what? Make intercession for them. It means he lives evermore to make intercession for his people who he loved so much and gave his life for to die. Justification. We've talked, we've had whole sermons on justification, what it is, the importance that, that, that we are declared righteous in the court of heaven. And, and it, it's, it's actually a legal matter. And so that's why Paul could write in Romans 8.33, who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one that justifies. If God is justified, no one can bring a charge against you. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Go back to the courtroom scene with me for a moment. Four major players, as you may say. You've got the judge, the prosecutor, the defense attorney, and the defendant. God, of course, is the judge. You might picture Satan as the prosecutor. You are the accused, (laughs) the defendant, right? And Jesus is there as your defense attorney pleading on your behalf until the Father declares them justified by the work of Jesus. What a beautiful picture that is. To know that not only is the Father for me, because as we go back before Ephesians 1.3, before the foundation of the world, He chose us in Christ. That is, our union with Christ was secure before the foundation of the world. Yes, how does that work in time and space? That's order salutis, of course. We we need to be quickened. We need to be regenerated. We're, We're justified. We're sanctified, and so forth and so on. But back in that covenant of redemption, in eternity past, the whole Trinity was united. And so, it is no surprise that God as judge listens to his son as He pleads the case of all the defendants of God's people. Robert Murray McShane said this, When I sin, I feel when I have sinned an immediate reluctance to go to Christ. I'm so ashamed to go. I feel as if it would do no good to go. As if it were making Christ a minister of sin to go straight from the swine trowel to the best robe and a thousand other excuses but I am persuaded that they are all lies direct from hell. So do you see what he's saying here? And this a Scottish minister that died at age 29, used amaz- amazingly by God during his short years in the ministry. What he's saying is our flesh. When, when we sin, we're, we are, we're shamed. Sin brings shame. Our flesh is such to where we don't want to keep short accounts and go directly to God. And what he's saying here is that is a lie from the pit of hell. Keep short accounts. Go quickly to him, confessing your sin. As we'll sing in a moment after the sermon, Arise, my soul, arise. Shake off your guilty fears. A bleeding sacrifice on my behalf, appears before the throne. My surety stands. There he is, a pleading sacrifice, pleading my case for me, the Lord Jesus. So arise, my soul, arise. Well, Jesus satisfied all of God's wrath as we come to this uh, verse 2 here. And this is the basis of how he could be an advocate. He himself 
is a propitiation for our sins, and not only for ours, but for those of the whole world. There can be no intercession and pleading your case without propitiation. Without propitiation. We'll get to what that word means. We've moved from the courtroom scene that John has painted for us in the classroom in verse 2-1 to now a picture of the temple, okay? So I want you to think along with me. Because what he is saying is that Jesus is our atoning sacrifice. The meaning of propitiation, you might think of it like this, wrath, justice, holiness, and love. Those words describe the four characteristics of God that need to be reconciled in regards to our sin. And since Jesus was perfectly righteous, he can't just wink at sin. He can't just wave his hand and give a pass. There had to be payment for your sin, a true payment, not some mock payment, not some smoke and mirrors, a true payment. And it's at the cross where God's wrath and love and justice and holiness are met together. God's holiness makes sin an affront to his his pure character. God's justice demands that there has to be a payment for that sin in one way or another. God's love causes him to love sinners. And because of God's love, he sends a substitute the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who would bear the very wrath of God that we deserved. He stood in our place and took it upon himself in full measure. Hebrews 9, there's so many verses, I could almost read the whole chapter again. Brother Aaron read that earlier, just 12.24. And to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to, be, and to the sprinkled blood, which speaks better than the blood of Abel. Well, what does this word propitiation mean? Some of the newer translations have uh, taken it out and rephrased it. Um, It's it's a very important word. It only occurs four times, at least the root. Um, There's twice in 1 John, and we'll see it again in chapter 4 and verse 10. The other two places are Hebrews 2.13 and Romans 3.25. The word communicates a turning aside of divine wrath by means of an acceptable sacrifice. Let's put that backwards. An acceptable sacrifice is what turns away God's wrath towards us. His just wrath, because we are sinners deserving of wrath. It's a turning away of divine wrath. We read that passage in Exodus 25 in our scripture reading. I hope you were paying attention to that. I know sometimes those texts uh, can, can take a little while, but, but I want to just draw your attention here that in the, in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament that was made about 200 BC or roughly thereabouts, actually uses this word that only occurs four times in the New Testament in the place of mercy seat. And so the mercy seat, as we understand, what is the mercy seat? Well, it was about three and a half feet long by two feet wide, made of solid gold that would go on top of the Ark of the Covenant. What was inside of the Ark of the Covenant? The Ten Commandments, right? Aaron's mud at this point and all of that. So there's a few things in there, but the law of God that had been broken so much. The mercy seat, the cherubim on top, and this is all inside the Holy of Holies, which a high priest would go in once per year on the day of atonement and intercede on behalf of all of the people and sprinkle blood on the mercy seat. 
You know, there's, no, there's nowhere recorded that they ever cleaned the blood. I mean, can you imagine after a couple hundred years what that mercy seat would look like with layers and layers and layers and layers of blood and all over the place in that area? But the idea is that the blood went to the mercy seat. The mercy seat caught the blood. It was a propitiation to satisfy the Shekinah glory of God as the incense would be, would be lit and God's presence would come, as it were, as the blood is being sprinkled and we as the lawbreakers are granted forgiveness. It functioned as a place where atonement for sins occurred. But the bloody animal sacrifices, we know, could never take away sin, right? Hebrews 9, verse 24, For Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands, a mere copy of the true one, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Nor was it that he should offer himself often as a high priest enters the holy place, year after year, with the blood not his own. Otherwise, he would have needed to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But since now, once at the consummation of the ages, he has been manifested to put away sin by what? The sacrifice of himself. Do you see how ridiculous it is to think that, to be expecting some new temple to be built and new animal sacrifices and all that? Do you see how that undermines the finished work of Christ? There's no more need for that. It's manifested to put away sin once for all by the sacrifice of himself. Well, let's look at this a little further. He himself is the propitiation for our sins. So he's an advocate that stands before the Father to plead our case, Jesus Christ the righteous. Very clear, that's who the advocate is. And he himself is also the propitiation for our sins. And John goes on to say, and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. So we don't have time to completely unpack this, but we do want to certainly address it. What does this mean? Does this mean every single person in the world? (laughs) Okay, somebody was shaking their head yes. If Christ died for every single person in the world, every single person in the world would be saved, right? It's not a failure. It's not that his blood saves some and it doesn't save others. Um, Some would say that, well, it's the idea, and furthermore, it's, I mean, you've got fallen angels and all of that, which it clearly states that there is no hope of redemption for those who are fallen. If one will be reconciled to God, Christ will provide that payment. It's more than just the Gentiles and the Jews, because I think this is a general epistle. It's, it's to a mixed multitude. It's an Asia Minor for crying out loud. Some would say that he's writing only to Jews, and he means that some Gentiles will be saved. But it's, I think it's more than that. And we know that it's going to be vast people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. Uh, Revelation 7, 9. And I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. Now, the question is certainly not, is his blood sufficient enough to save every single person that's ever been born in the world? Yes and amen. Um, But it's effective only for those who savingly believe. In fact, John, and later in chapter 3 and verse 10, he makes a distinction. By this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. 
So there's obviously two groups, children of God and children of the devil. Caiaphas, who was not was, was high priest, so he prophesied in John chapter 11, says this, it is expedient for, for you that one man die for the people and that for the whole nation not perish. Now, he did not say this on his own initiative, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nation and not for the nation only, but in order that he might also gather together all the children of God who are scattered abroad. So the question boils down to, what is the design of the atonement of Christ? What's the design? What was God's original design for the work of Christ on the cross? It's to save those for whom he died. John Calvin uh, says this, he says, Here is a question to be raised. How have the sins of the whole world been expiated? Another word for propitiation. I pass by the fanatics who under the pretense extend salvation to the reprobate and even to Satan himself. Such a monstrous thing deserves no refutation. He won't even bother refuting such a thing that all those who curse at God and hate God, that that God's going to ultimately save them along with the devil himself. Look, Christ's blood is precious enough to save the souls of a thousand worlds. There's, There's no question about that, but it is only a factual for those who believe. And there's some of you here today that you have refused to truly embrace Christ, to truly believe to truly cast off every care and every hindrance and and to fall at his feet begging for mercy. (coughs) By your deeds, we will know them. Now, we don't have time to, as I said, fully develop this. Um, Most of us are familiar with TULIP, which is an acronym for just speaking the doctrines of grace and uh, total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, and perseverance of the saints. I like particular redemption because the redemption that Christ wrought was peculiar and particular in nature. Many, many times it's referred to as the total of God's people is the many. You might think of it this way. I think John Owen first coined this in volume 10 of his work on the atonement. Either Jesus died for all the sins of all men, therefore all would be saved, Or secondly, he died for some of the sins of some men, or of all men, then no one would be saved, right? If he didn't pay for every one of our sins. Or he died for all the sins of some men, therefore some would be saved. Furthermore, if you think through this, there's a divine transaction that takes place. Uh, 2 Corinthians 5.21, he made him, Christ, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf. So our sins are imputed to the Son. He became sin for us when he propitiated that wrath from the Father. But then the verse goes on to say, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. His perfect life, keeping the law perfectly, is imputed to my account. 1 Peter 3.18, For Christ also died for sins once and for all. The just one for the what? The unjust, right? And the word for is very important, and there's several passages that speak of substitution. It's huper in the Greek. 
It's not just, it's, it's, you could actually translate it instead of. The just one instead of the unjust one. Isn't that beautiful? That he died for sins once and for all. The one that was just for me who is unjust. And what's the reason? The verse goes on, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Well, just a, a couple of comments as we conclude Verses 1 and 2 of 1 John, uh, deep waters, a lot to think about. Great encouragement for the child of God. Picture that courtroom scene again. When you sin and you feel ashamed, run to your public defender who pleads your case. Run to your high priest. Cry out to him, Jesus, help me, hear me. Cry out to him. Keep short accounts with your fellow man and especially with God. Know that your advocate is never on vacation. You're never going to get the answering machine, as it were. You're never going to help. He's too busy with other cases. He can get to your case next next summer. Nope. He's always available instantly at any time for the child of God to plead your case. And he's never lost a case yet. A hundred percent success rate as he pleads our case before God. Is that encouraging? Why would we want to run from our sin and hide our sin and all of that when we can freely confess it, know that we have an advocate to plead the case to where pardon will be given? Secondly, are you living in light of the hope that Christ has died for your every sin? This affects how you live practically. When Satan comes to you, accusing you, Monday morning, maybe you've you know, you've gotten angry, you've said words that you regret or whatever, and, and Satan comes and accuses you. How do you think you're a Christian? Whatever it is, you know, you're professing to be a Christian and all of that. Know that we have an advocate that we can run to to keep short accounts. As your conscience becomes more and more guilty, maybe it's something that you haven't realized that you know, some behavior that, that's pointed out to you and, and you become broken and, and you, your guilty conscience claim the promises of God and confess and forsake. If you've been forgiven so much, how can you keep a grudge against another? And, and you see how practical this is. And to the degree that we get this right vertically, it's going to affect horizontally our relationships with one another. Beware of bitterness or allowing a root of bitterness. Uh, bitter, bitterness is an, it's an interesting word to study. <clears throat> I mean, husbands are told in Colossians 3, do not embitter your wives, okay? So we, it's a warning for us men. Also, Revelation 8, 11, the name of the star was called Wormwood, and a third of the waters became Wormwood, and many died in the waters because they were made, what? Bitter. In describing the depravity of the wicked in Romans chapter 3, One of the verses that Paul quotes from the Psalms, their mouth is filled with curses and bitterness. And that's why we need to take heed to Ephesians 4.11. Let all bitterness and all wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Just another plug for tonight's message. If you can't hear it live, certainly listen to it because I think it's very important that we get this right Remember, Peter thinks he's, Peter thinks Jesus is going to pat me on the back this time. 
How many times must, must we forgive, Lord? Seven? I mean, he's thinking, I'm going above and beyond here. What does Jesus say? Take seven, times it by another number, perfection 10, comes up with 70, and puts seven on top of that. So the point is that you keep track of all the wrongs, and when you get to 490, sorry, that's your 491st one, I can't forgive you. No, it means there is no limit. (laughs) We must forgive. We who have been forgiven so much. And then ask yourself, in light of this wonderful truth, that who we are as the children of God, that, that we're not perfect, but we're not what we once were. We're, we're, we're being sanctified and we're growing. That are we exhibiting the fruits of the Spirit unto others? Thirdly, are you sharing this glorious gospel with others? Take opportunity to take it to a lost and dying world. The abortion mills, Balboa Park, your own workplace, your schools. Share the hope that is within you. And lastly, if you're here today and you're outside of Christ, what folly it is to deny that you're a sinner. We've already seen that. I mean, you're deceived. You're running off course. You're making God a liar. Admit you're a sinner. Come to Christ, throwing yourself on his mercy. Confess and embrace Jesus by faith as a suitable Savior. I end with a quote from one of the Puritans, Richard Eileen, Joseph Eileen's uh, relative. He says this, I tell you again, I wish you well. And not only do I, but the Lord God has sent me to you. The Lord Jesus wishes you well. He wishes and woos. He woos and he weeps. He weeps and he dies that your souls might live and be blessed forever. He has once more sent me to you, even the worst among you, to tell you from him that he's unwilling that you should perish, but that you have a kindness for you in his heart if you will accept it. Come to Jesus Christ as a suitable Savior. Let's pray. Oh, Father, how we thank you for your word. We thank you for the comforts of your word that we have considered here. We thank you, Lord, that your word is infallible and can be trusted. And what great news we have that a holy, righteous, perfect Father, that your wrath could be satisfied because our sin has been made laid upon Christ. Lord, what wonderful news this is. And we thank you that even in his present intercession at the right hand of the Father, that he pleads our case throughout this pilgrimage, throughout this life, life is but a vapor. There are hills of difficulties. There's valleys of the shadow of death. There's sicknesses. There's pain. There's suffering. And all of this that he pleads our case as we would cry out to him. And Lord, we long for that better country. We long for that heavenly country. We long to be amongst that multitude from every tribe, tongue, language, and people singing your praises. For today, we ask that you would renew our minds, that you would quicken us by your Spirit, that you would have dealings with each one of us. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.